Welcome to another episode of the M121 Podcast. I'm Josh Cochran. Today we're talking about experiences of becoming a Primitive Baptist. And if you listened to the last podcast last month, I talked to David Wise about what is a Primitive Baptist. And over the next few episodes, we hope to talk to different people who have been so convicted about what they learned in their journey to the Primitive Baptist that they left what they knew behind uh, to become part of the Primitive Baptist Church. And the first person we're talking to today is Dan Sammons. He's the pastor of Harmony Primitive Baptist Church in Donaldson, Arkansas. You can you can find that website at SuccessfulSavior.org. Uh, but let's welcome Dan on. Dan, thanks for joining us. Hey, thanks for having me. I'm looking forward to it. I am too. I'm looking forward to talking to you about this, and I hope that others will. Uh, there's probably a lot of people who've had a similar experience, but maybe uh, others who who are in the position you were in years ago. Uh, we'll, we'll spark some curiosity on their end, but let's let's just begin by telling me about yourself. I mean, where did, you know, growing up, did you grow up in a Christian family, a Christian home? Were you part of a church? Yeah, I was uh, raised in a Christian home and uh, had was blessed with good and godly parents. Uh, you know, Christianity and uh, the faith and attending church was something that was always important uh, in my family. I was raised um, in the Presbyterian Church, so I guess my original introduction to uh, church was was kind of in the Reformed Presbyterian tradition. So uh, I was raised a Calvinist, to to put it very plainly. Um, and it was only uh, many years after growing up and and uh, kind of going through all that that I came to realize that. Uh, Presbyterian Calvinism was kind of a compromise that my mom and dad had struck in their uh, preferences about how to raise their children in the church. My um, my mom and dad are both from the Donaldson community, which is where Harmony Church is, but uh, the Donaldson community has more than one church. Um, <clears throat> and, you know, my mother was raised a missionary Baptist, and her family actually had missionary Baptist ministries and things like that. My father was raised in the Primitive Baptist Church. So them coming together was a little bit like uh, the Hatfields and the McCoys uh, in Donaldson, Arkansas. Uh, but it created a little bit of a conflict between them about, you know, what the truth is. And uh, I, I like to say that they, they came to the compromise of Geneva and decided to— <laughs> Raised me in neither the Primitive Baptist Church nor the Missionary Baptist Church, but in the Reformed Presbyterian Church, uh, where they found each of them found some things that they liked. So that's kind of how I was raised, um, and church was very important to my family. The Bible is very important to my family. Well, that's that's a blessing in itself, you know, to have a family where that was important and that was a part of your life. But um, you know, compromising, I, I kind of went through that with with my wife as we. Uh, we're we're going through some some marriage counseling, you know, prior to getting mm-hmm. married, and um, right. I was Primitive Baptist and she was not, and and we even we talked about that some, you know, do we? And it's funny because it was a Presbyterian church that we thought about. Well, maybe yep. we'll try that, and um, the Lord really worked on me, and more so, I guess, worked on uh, worked on her, and and uh, it's kind of a testimony to a loving wife. Uh, I don't want to go down that road too much, but I came home one day and I said, hey, I can't do it. I've got to. I've got to stay in this primitive Baptist church, and I know it's not what right. you're used to, or not what you you probably desire. And and to her credit, she said, "Well, uh, you're you're my husband now, and we'll just I'll, I'll follow you." And um, you know, that's I think about that 
now. And boy, that's just changed my life, my kid's life. Uh, you know, now pastor in a primitive Baptist church, it's just been life changing. Um, that decision that she made that day. So didn't want to go down that well, road, but well, no, that's a great, that's a great testimony. And, and, uh, you know, I think it's a it's a challenge that uh, many families face, right? So um, there, there's a couple of ways you can. I've seen people deal with it. They can stick their heads in the sand and pretend that it's not going to be a problem, uh, and maybe in so doing, you know, de-emphasize the importance of church altogether, which is a uh, not really the way you want to go. Or they can uh, get in a knockdown drag out over it and turn it into a big nasty thing. So. Um, you know, I, I think it's important that families realize and, and really people when they're dating and they're coming together to get married that they try to get in front of some of these issues. Uh, they they are going to be there and you do have to work through them together. So I appreciate your wife's example in that and I uh, trust that you've been blessed in that. We have. But yeah, where, you, where you're going to worship as a family is a huge thing that you probably do need to work out. Uh, prior to marriage, uh, Lord was <laughs> as a testimony to His grace and mercy in my life. That's my life is just a is a continual uh, testimony to His grace. I, I mess up and there He works go. it out for me. So uh, we we may not have done uh, done it exactly the way I'd counsel <clears throat> others to do it, but God's good. Um, Amen. So you were raised in a church, raised in a Presbyterian church as a Calvinist. Uh, I was. I was. Did you? I don't know if you're like me. I was raised in church. Um, you know, as you grow a little older, you kind of drift away from church. How did that work with you? Uh, I was on that same uh, drift away plan uh, <laughs> that you you were apparently on. Yep. I, I think it's uh, you know fairly common. But uh, in my later years, when I went off to college and in my early adulthood and even in my early marriage you know it, it just was not important to me I, I sort of walked away from uh, really spiritual things altogether and was more focused on um, you know just living my life and uh, Catherine and I you know we were married uh, during that time uh, we spent the first many many years of our marriage not going to church and or only occasionally going. We might have been CEOs, you know, Christmas and Easter only uh, Christians. Uh, but it was not something that was important to me and um, didn't really become important to either one of us uh, until we had children. And, um, you know, when, when you have some children and God holds those little mirrors up to you and starts showing you some things about yourself it, it's a it's a sobering um, reality that comes upon you or at least it did upon me it actually came upon Catherine first and foremost and there was a season there where Catherine actually started going back to church and getting involved in church um, at the church where my, my parents attend and where actually subsequently I had become a member of that church though I hadn't been there in a long time she started getting involved there and really did so without me being involved. And it took me quite some time to, to come around to, you know, the conviction of, you know what, she's right. We, we, we're not creating a platform here, you know, in our example to teach our children about the importance of the faith and uh, what we believe. And um, so, Gradually, I, I 
got involved in, in starting to go to church again. But in 2004, I actually had the thought that, um, you know, I've really, ne- I've never read the Bible from cover to cover. I was pretty familiar with the Bible. Uh, as I said, my parents raised me in a way that was, uh, you know, Christianity was not foreign to me. My mother would put little Bible verses out next to my breakfast cereal every morning. There was little cards called Bread of Life, and they had almost like a fortune cookie type thing. Each one had a verse on it, and she'd make me read that verse, and sometimes she'd ask me a question about it. So my parents did a good job of acquainting me with the idea that the Word of God is important. And I think that was the seed that began to germinate in my mind, and, and I started thinking, you know, I should read the Bible. So in 2004, I read the Bible in one of those one-year plans, yeah. and uh, it, I feel like that sort of started the ball rolling. It's like uh, there were a lot of profound moments over the course of reading that, not the least of which was coming to the Sermon on the Mount and, and you know, reading that and, and kind of having the experience of never a man spake as this man. You know, I read that in its entirety, maybe for the first time in my life. And I thought, this is the most incredible discourse in human history. And there, this is something I should be more familiar with. And I've been woefully uh, neglectful of it. So um, after reading that and, and sort of going on a, a plan there of several years where I would read the Bible every year, not long after that, the Lord sort of put a question on my heart it was plaguing my conscience and that question was if my children <clears throat> were asked what's important to their father what would they say and sobering question <laughs> it was it was uh, it was very sobering to me and it, it really troubled me because uh, i i knew what i wanted them to say but I could not credibly convince myself that that's what they would say. And that uh, dissonance between those two things uh, really sparked an interest in me uh, of, of saying, I've got to start teaching my children the Word of God. And <laughs> that started the ball rolling towards what ultimately I think landed me in the ministry, but uh, it started with just the conviction of, I need to be teaching my children the Word of God in my house. And as I started down that path, I soon realized I don't know nearly as much about the Bible as I thought I did. Um, Yeah, kids can ask questions, hard questions too, you know? Yeah, they, they, they ask the questions a lot of times that Adults are either too distracted or, um, you know, too courteous to ask or something <laughs> like that. I don't know. Yeah, they, they ask a lot of questions, and um, it, it, it sparked uh, a desire in me. To, I've got to really press into this now. It's not just a matter of, I'm going to read you the Bible, uh, and we're going to talk about it. It's, there, there's deeper issues here that I've got to have some answers for. Um, or I need to be working on answers for. And and actually, what this, what this 
teaching my children actually taught me was the value of being able to just say, you know what, I don't know the answer to that. <laughs> you know, I, it's been well said among even, you know, just in secular circles that there's no such thing as a dumb question. Uh, I'm not sure that's entirely true. I, I think I've heard some dumb questions, but but uh, if you take the spirit of that statement, um, you, you can look at it and say, look, if, if you've got enough sense to ask a question and if you're honest enough to admit I don't know the answer to this such that I'm going to ask this question. You're at least recognizing something that's necessary for you to remove that ignorance, right? I'm ignorant in this respect. What is the answer? You can press into that. If you've somehow convinced yourself that you know it or you've never explored that, you can be convinced that you you know more than you do. So it's really important to be able to, if, you, if your kids ask you one of those questions, you don't know the answer to say, you know what? I don't know the answer to that. Let's pray about it. Let's keep reading and uh, let's see what else we find. And I, I think we've had a lot of those questions answered over the years, but um, that's, that's good advice. It's funny. I've never, so Dan and I've never really spoke about our journeys. Uh, you know, we, we've talked about our experiences as ministers and some of those things, but we've never talked about what we're talking about right now. And I can remember right. my wife and I, we knew that you know church so going in the marriage we knew that church needed to be a large part of our family you know it we wanted right. to raise our children <clears throat> in the church but we were just polar opposite on what church is and just a right. lot of those things and you know we were working on that i've kind of i kind of alluded to that earlier but i remember when she she came into the den uh, one night and said i'm mm-hmm. pregnant and literally, I was playing PlayStation with a remote control in my hand, and and <laughs> my first thought was not, you know, great. This is awesome. My the first thing that came to my mind is I've got to grow up. And yeah, I was I was going to say that was the moment your childhood ended. Yeah, it ended right then and there. The second yeah. thing was. Now that doesn't say pregnant. That's just a line or two lines or whatever it was. So we searched all over. Shelby County, Alabama, for a pregnancy test that would say pregnant or not pregnant. <laughs> mm-hmm. But um, that was that was really what sparked, you know, my journey as far as digging into the Word of God. Kind of like you've been saying, is the weight of children. I mean, children are just God uses children to sanctify the parents. Um, yeah, it's it's there's, really amazing. So there, during this time. No- doubt no doubt about that during this time you're digging into the word of god you're learning more are you involved in the church at this point well not initially uh well perhaps only tangentially at first and then uh it's probably around that exact same time that i started actually going to church more and at this time uh, with the the reformed presbyterian church i was raised in had kind of dwindled down to really nothing and when i was a in years before, when I was in high school, my parents sort of decided, this is not healthy. You need to be in a church and uh, that has more people in it or whatever. And, and uh, ch- several people from our church had joined another kind of an independent Calvinistic, Baptistic church. Uh, and so we, uh, we ended up going to that church. Uh, and that's where, you know, when we started going back to church, Catherine and I, uh, that's where we were going to church. So um, I got involved there, and slowly I, 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 I 
play guitar and bass and, and I slowly got involved in the choir and some music ministry sorts of things and ultimately was a children's teacher and taught in Awana and some things like that. And, and those so you're getting pretty involved in this church. I, 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 my involvement grew pretty rapidly. The more I was studying the word of God, and I would say initially there was a fair degree of interest in, oh, this, this young man's interested in spiritual things, and he, we'll, we'll give him more to do here and there. Um, at, at, at one point, culminating in, in bringing me up as a deacon candidate, which as um, part of the interview process, I ended up sort of dropping out of consideration because by that point I had started to have some pretty vexing questions about uh, the theology that was being taught there, in particular, that particular brand of Calvinism that was being taught there. And what I came, have come to realize are some of the, the untenable problems that exist in that theology for which there, there really aren't any answers. Yeah. Well, and that's part of the reason we ha- we're having you on because I mean, now you're involved in this church, your family's involved in this church and it is, I mean, I totally get that once you get involved in a, in an organization like that, you know, a church, a, a family of people, a, a right. community, it is so hard to leave that behind. You know, something has to convict you to leave that, right? So obviously you have, and, and, and the Lord has blessed you and, and your family, but what sparked kind of, now you're, you're involved in the church and, and you just said there's some questions that you had that maybe took you out of consideration for the, the deaconship or those things. What, what kind of, what, what sparked you to look somewhere else? When you're in a Calvinistic church, a modern Calvinistic church, there's a, a lot of teachings there that um, if, on a surface level, you might say from a, primitive Baptist perspective, you might say, well, they, they believe TULIP, and the, P, the PBs believe TULIP, and they believe in election and predestination, and we believe in election and predestination. And, and so, real know, quick, just somebody's listening, so like a, when you say in a Calvinistic church, are you talking about maybe conservative Presbyterians and Reformed Baptists and, and a, lot, a lot of Southern Baptists, those type, is that what you're, you're referring to as Calvinistic? Yeah, I mean, the, the particular, Calvinism is a broad thing right there's right. a lot of different varieties out there of, of uh, even five-point calvinism out there but the the particular style of calvinism if you will that that this church was involved with was kind of a, the john macarthur sort you know um right you know kind of if you, if you were to go look at ministers that they would reference a lot it would be john macarthur and john piper and um you know, Alistair Begg and those kind of guys. So sort of in that vein, uh, Lordship Salvation Calvinism might be. Right. That's the word I was about to use. Uh, So like Paul Washer, some of those guys. Right, right. Uh, Exactly. So it's hard to say, you know, people would dispute maybe some of those people being included or whatever, because everybody defines it a little differently and, and whatnot, but those those folks, I can say those folks we just named, they they've all spoken at the same conferences and things like that. So, you know, they're kind of they're somewhere in the same universe of Calvinism. Yeah, the reason I um, wanted you, you know, Calvinism is like the boogeyman in in a lot of different denominations, but for a lot of different reasons, right? So, 
right. It's kind of helpful to define what what are you talking about for Calvinism. Yeah, and you know, I think that's that's true even in the Primitive Baptist Church. There's, I I feel at times as a minister compelled to explain that though I believe in tulip election and predestination, I am not a Calvinist. Um, and we, you well know, as other ministers do, we have our very specific reasons for that related to doctrine and church history and what we believe was taught in the New Testament and those sorts of things. Uh, however, going into that, you know, explanation uh, in many instances doesn't have much utility because the broader world uh, of Christianity says, well, if you believe in tulip election and predestination, you're a Calvinist because right. that's what we call a Calvinist. So you kind of have to measure, you know, the degree to which you want to take up that issue in any particular conversation. And it can be, you know, quite confusing to people. So, um, yeah, at, at the, at this particular church, it's more kind of the John MacArthur style Calvinism, uh, of those men that we described. And that, that, Theology, while um, it admittedly embraces more of the truth than what I would call garden variety Arminian evangelicalism, because it does embrace, in some sense, the total depravity of man, election, predestination, you know, those sorts of things, it still maintains some um, concepts that sort of make it a bizarre hybrid that I could not really can't be reconciled with the precepts of grace. The primary example of which I, that I would put out there just quickly is um, affirming that uh, there, there is a limited atonement, particular redemption. Christ died for the elect. And then also saying, nevertheless, the gospel is a sincere or well-meant offer to all of humanity. Well, that is a bald, logical contradiction. And I've asked this question of their best trained ministers reconcile that. And they, they, they don't have a reconciliation. They just say, well, it's an antinomy, which just is a kind of a fancy, tarted up way of saying, yeah, it's a logical contradiction. And that just can't be. It cannot be. I've said it this way with reverential fear. God himself cannot sincerely offer eternal salvation to a man that he never purposed to save, he did not send his son to save, and he did not send his spirit to regenerate, never never did he purpose to do any of those things. So even God could not sincerely offer salvation to a man who falls into that category. Who's incapable of being saved. That's exactly right. So that was real that was kind of the core question I kept trying to distill down uh, you know, what is my issue? Because it, it could get confusing. You'd find these inconsistencies here and there. And I, I spent time trying to distill it down to like, what's the core question? And that question is, how can God sincerely offer eternal salvation to a man for whom Jesus Christ did not die? So that's the question that puts the well-meant offer of salvation to all of humanity at odds with particular redemption. And there's no way to answer that question. And I asked it to innumerable ministers in that tradition and uh, Calvinists of all stripes. And there is no answer to it. That's the, the answer is there is no answer. And so, so you kept getting the answer that 
you know, it's just a divine mystery or whatever, but that, that didn't satisfy you. Well, I got the, uh, what I call the, 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 uh, Deuteronomy 29, 29 answer, right? So secret things are of the Lord, you know, you're, you're pressing into a, basically the answer is, well, that is, that crime scene has been, has got police tape all around it and you can't cross that line. You can't go in there. Uh, well, I'm going in there. So I, I, it's, it's an inevitable place to go if you're trying to actually reconcile the claims of this theological system. And being told you can't go in there is really just another way of saying, we don't have any solution to this issue. So I, I believe, based on you know John 10, 35, that the scripture cannot be broken. And I think what that means is that if your explanation to how two concepts are reconciled is a logical contradiction, you've got something wrong. So you've got to go back and revisit one or the other. You either have to say, well, particular redemption is actually not right. Maybe Christ did die for all of humanity, and that's why he's able to offer sincerely salvation to all of humanity. That would be one possible way to do it. Of course, to do that, you'd be uh, totally stepping over, you know, the precepts of grace and and um, in, in manifold ways. So the other option is to say, well, it must be that the gospel is not a well-meant offer of salvation to all of humanity. And that, to me, is the proper reconciliation of the dilemma. Um However, in that particular theological tra tradition, if you, the, the well-meant offer of salvation to all of humanity is essentially the secret handshake of modern Calvinism. If you're not willing to affirm that singular point, you will be cast into outer darkness because that is totally unacceptable. That is the calling card of modern Calvinism. So you have to, they you're forced into embracing that antinomy, as they call it, that contradiction, or you're you're really considered outside the camp, regarded as a hyper-Calvinist, and once, once that scarlet H is on your forehead, they don't really want to deal with you anymore about it. So that was, there's a lot behind all that, but that was um, kind of the core question that, that caused me to start looking for greener pastures. You know, it's interesting, and, and I don't know if maybe you had some of this struggle too, but I've talked to many people, and, and Lordship Salvation, which is what is popular, uh, it's the popular form of Calvinism right now, it seems to be at least. Yeah, yeah is, I think that's right. I believe it's it's spiritual child abuse is what it is, is because mm -hmm. you're, you're, you're abusing the child of God, you're, you're robbing them of assurance. And I've talked to many people who were under that teaching, and they never could live mm -hmm. up to the standard that the preacher or whoever was setting. And, and they lacked assurance. So people that I personally know who have been under that teaching, they lacked assurance, and, and it led to depression, and it led to, am I, really, am I really saved? Am I really a child of God? But it sounds like you weren't really dealing with that. You were dealing with, uh, you, you know, you, you saw God for who he is, that he redeemed a particular people that that. He, he didn't offer them salvation. He secured salvation for these people. You saw that, but you couldn't, you couldn't pair up what they were teaching, right? That particular redemption with this, the, you know, the gospel, we need to get the gospel to them to be saved. 
Yeah, I think I think part of my issue was that my understanding of Calvinism um, was perhaps a, a form of Calvinism or the brand of Calvinism that I believed was more severe, you might say, and more primitive Baptist-like than the Calvinism that was being so broadly promoted. Uh, you know, you don't have to go back very far in Presbyterian history to find people like Gordon Clark who are fighting battles over some of these issues like the well-met offer. Gordon Clark doesn't have a problem saying the gospel is not a well-meant offer of salvation to all of humanity. He's a Calvinist. He gets that right. And they were fighting about this in Presbyterian seminaries, you know, half a century ago and uh, or more. And, and, you know, Gordon Clark won those debates. However, he lost the war in the matter because though they recognized him as right, those professors uh, like Cornelius Van Til and others, uh, who had the other position, which was embracing antinomies and, you know, well-meant offerism, those sorts of things. They ultimately came to dominate the theological instruction of their institutions. And so that mindset kind of won out and has become dominant now in Calvinism, even though, honestly, it's not good Calvinism, right? Um, it's certainly not consistent Calvinism, because when you have to resort to an antinomy, which uh, is just, I call it theological spackle, right? You've got these two things that they don't really fit right together. So get out the antinomy and we're going to spackle over that and maybe nobody will notice the <laughs> unsightly seam between them. Um, that That's kind of where most much of Calvinism is today. It's in that, um, in that tough spot of trying to embrace those antinomies. So I... I I, I couldn't deal with that. It, it's just, uh, and I, I, I had to believe that by pressing through that issue, there is a resolution to it. And there is. It's actually quite simple. It's, it's as simple as saying the gospel is not a well-meant offer of salvation to all of humanity. It's just not. Christ didn't die for all of humanity. Any Calvinist would say, yeah, I agree with that. Well, once you've agreed with that, you have, so I would ask this. If you're going to offer salvation to someone who is of the non-elect, what is the atoning basis upon which that offer is extended? It can't be the atonement of Christ because Christ did not die for that person. So that observation alone proves there's no atoning basis for the offer, and therefore there's no such thing as a well-meant offer of eternal salvation to all of humanity. So and so those two things don't line up. <laughs> yeah, and you're 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 in your journey. You're you're now searching for a, a consistent Calvinism, I guess. So was there a straw that broke the camel's back? Because you're involved in this church, but at some point you're going to start looking for something else. And kind of tell us about how that started and and how how that led you to the Primitive Baptist Church. Well, there were many conversations, and uh, honestly, a lot of folks even ministers in those traditions, they're not even as well-versed on some of these issues because they don't really dive into them, right? They they try not to go there, right? There's police tape there. Don't go in there, right? Um, so if you don't go in there, you don't see and you don't even know how to defend the issues. Um, I spent a lot of time talking to various ministers and other people in the church about these issues, and they were honestly pretty incredibly disoriented to 
the problem I was trying to tee up and discuss with them. I, I got a lot of recommendations. Go read this book. Go read that book. This deals with it. And in doing that, I realized many of these books that are being recommended, they, they don't even address the issue I have. Like they, so in, to their defense, they really weren't even oriented enough to this question to, to be prepared to, to deal with it. But the, in, through a lot of these conversations and uh, I, at the time, I had a lot of zeal on the matter and I thought, you know, I, I, I think I really see something here. Maybe I can help people see this. I think it's an important truth. It really reconciles a lot of things. But as I tried to teach and, and talk about those things, I found a, a growing uh, discomfort on their part with, um, you know, discussing those matters. And uh, so there was a growing tension going on there. And it all kind of culminated in a, in a final church service where you know i was hearing a lot of these contradictions brought up in in church and it would bother me and i'd talk about it on the way home from church and i think Catherine was pretty vexed by me being so troubled by it and uh, at the end of it there was this final sermon that was preached um and there were just multiple things that were said in that 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 just they're so clearly not salvation by sovereign grace i actually wrote down two of these things from that sermon, like direct quote. So see if this makes sense. One's quote was, seek me, search for me, find me, and when you do, I will be there. I will love you. I will save you. I will take care of you. I will give you eternal life. I don't believe that at all. Because there's none that seek it. A man who is in a state of unregeneracy cannot seek God. And God giving you eternal life is not hinged upon you seeking him, else no one would be saved because there's none that seek it. So that to me was like a just this incredibly sour note sounding out from the pulpit. And I just thought, I don't believe that. That is not within a thousand miles of sovereign grace. It's works based, right? I mean, that is works. It is seek in order to get eternal life. That is not sovereign grace. So the, the second quote was, and you must seek him. And if you ask, and if you seek, and if you knock, the door of salvation will be opened to you. Now, they're talking about eternal salvation. It's not no time salvation thing. They're talking about how do you get eternal life? How do you get born again? And so there were multiple of these in, in that sermon. And when that sermon was over, I actually went and got the down, downloaded it and transcribed it, and looked at it and talked to the elders about it. And it was just a stone wall. They're like, no, there's nothing wrong with any of that. And I just said, I, I don't believe that. I, I have to, I'm leaving. And I'd resigned from the church, asked to be removed from their roles because whatever else could be said, I don't believe that. I don't believe it at all. I think it's a total misunderstanding of the doctrine of salvation talked about. So that that was that was the straw that broke the camel's back. And you leave. Where do you go from there? Well, in parallel with some of these things, I had been uh, having conversations with. Uh, with my dad, who was raised, he's not an old Baptist, but he's a member of that church. Uh, 
uh, that I was leaving. But his beliefs are are very uh, closely aligned with Primitive Baptist, probably from his upbringing there. Uh, that had helped to solidify my thinking on things. And I'd also started to have a dialogue with uh, Elder Neil Phelan Jr., who uh, is the pastor at the church I'm pastoring now, was the pastor at the time. He also happens to be my second cousin, though we had almost nothing to do with one another. <laughs> Other than occasionally seeing each other at a at a you know family gathering or something, I, I really didn't know him at all hardly. Um, I started talking to him, and and so that was working in parallel with this. And so by the time we decided to leave, I realized there's some people who believe what I believe. It's not as though I got to go start a new church or you know whatever. There's people who, when I go talk to them and I tell them what I think about this, they they say, yeah, that's what we believe. And by the way, that's what we believed for a long time, right? Yeah, that's what we um, hold dear. <laughs> that's what we hold dear. So that that made it easy. I mean, we we stopped going to the to that church one Sunday, and we ended. We went to Harmony the following Sunday, and we've been there ever since. So uh, I'm thankful for uh, not only for Elder Phelan's you know ministry to me, my dad's. Uh, helping me through some of that but I, I have to you know call out some of those uh old baptists from years ago who somehow decided you know we got these cassette tapes here we ought to start recording sermons i mean that was in just an incredibly valuable resource for me because as i was studying this stuff i would go out and people you know find you know sonny pile sermons and i'm uh, finding things from Elder Michael Goins and and uh, Elder Joe Holder and I just I was able to listen to and at the time I had a job that allowed me to listen to sermons while I was working I bet I listened to ten years worth of ser- <laughs> primitive Baptist sermons in the span of about two years uh, just because I was listening to them all the time and I I appreciate those uh, the foresight of those brethren who said we're going to record these sermons you know and. And a lot of that stuff's on the internet now, and uh, I, I'm not the only person who's benefited from. It. There's a lot of people over the years who have benefited from those sermons, and they were instrumental in helping clarify and help me, helping me see the Primitive Baptist Church believes what I believe, and uh, it made that very clear to me. And so, and that's awesome. But to to boil it down, you were, you know, you couldn't, you couldn't get over the fact that you know god died for a particular group of people and they're teaching a well-meant offer to everybody and so you've worked that out with the primitive baptist because basically in a nutshell what we believe is christ died for a particular group of people and those people are going to be saved period right, right? He, he successfully right. saved them was there were there any other once you start attending the church in donaldson at harmony were there any kind of aha moments or or other doctrines that the primitive Baptists hold dear uh, that maybe other groups do not that kind of solidified this is the right place for me? Well, I, I don't think I can say that as a, as a function of starting to attend Harmony Church. I, I think by the time I started to attend, I was very familiar at that point with what primitive Baptists taught. I was just enjoying the fact that I was hearing it preached. I mean, when you're in a situation where you're hearing things preached and huge portions of it 
are so evidently not true. I mean, it was like almost giving me heart palpitations. I was sitting there because I'm listening. I'm, I want to be instructed. I want to hear the truth. And I would hear these things that were so glaringly and obviously and demonstrably false that it was really it was messing with my sleep schedule and uh, it's just visiting a lot of uh, vexation of spirit into my life. So I would say when I first started at Harmony, I was just rejoicing in the fact that I'm hearing the truth. This is what I believe. It's coming right out of the Bible. There's not some fancy thing going on here. We don't have an orchestra and a kids program and all this stuff. It's just God's people coming together. We sing, we pray, and somebody preaches from the Word of God, and we're looking at the Bible. I mean, it was just like, hallelujah, this is wonderful. Um, as as having After being there for a while, though, and thinking back through my experience, um, you know, I've thought about what were kind of the two main things beyond beyond that key question that I asked, what are the two things lingering out there that that uh, the primitive Baptists embrace that um, really clarify the Bible um, and were really instrumental and helpful uh, in me having a better understanding of the truth. It, it really comes down to two things. There's the proper understanding of the ordo salutis, the proper understanding of the order of salvation. I'm talking about a temporal, chronological order of salvation. And really, when you drill into, there's a lot to that, but if you get right down into the core of it, it is the fact that regeneration precedes in time faith. And that single concept clarifies a thousand different things in the Bible. Uh, so that's like a, an incredibly important precept that if, if people can get a grasp on that, it, it makes it, it solves a lot of problems. And the second one is the distinction that primitive Baptists make between eternal salvation and time salvation. And uh, that is an indispensable tool as well, because if you take the sort of ham-handed approach that every time the Bible says salvation, it's talking about whether or not somebody's going to heaven. I submit to you that the Bible is an irreconcilable pile of nonsense. If, without that division, you've got the Bible saying it's all of grace, and then you've got all these things that it says you've got to do to be saved, and you cannot make any sense of it. And by the way, if you're in a religious tradition that says, oh, but there's antinomies, which means there's logical contradictions and you have to embrace them both, they're going to tell you you have to embrace that too. Right. You got to. Uh, so, so that's a huge problem. The, mo the moment you have this antinomy in play, it becomes a cancerous error because then who becomes the arbiter of when you can use logic and when you can't? Right. Right. And, we're called to rightly divide the word of God and, and that's uh, right. It should all fit together. And, and where that's there exactly seems right. to be a, an error or a contradiction, I mean, we can know that's just in our mind. It's not in the word of God and that's it's right. something we've got to work through. Let me ask you this. You left, I mean, you were, you were involved in the church. You were, you know, teaching the, the Sunday schools. You were up for, to be a deacon. Your, your, your wife was involved. Your family's involved. You've established roots here. How hard was it? How difficult was it to leave? It it was uh, 
very hard um, to differing degrees for me than for my wife and my children. Uh, the conflict that uh, led to ultimately us leaving was uh, very vexing to me. I mean, I, I was, um, it, it's, it's hard to, um, to describe, but the, the more, perhaps more importantly was just um, a lot of the issues that, that Catherine had to work through because as is the case with a lot of churches, particularly bigger churches, there's a huge, you know, social component involved in that. And she was very plugged into um, all of the social aspects of, of that church. And so when we left, it was, um, you know, uh, uh, it, it was very harmful to her social network and sort of left a void there. And uh, one that, because of the remote nature of, of the church we attend now, was not really something that was ever going to be filled by uh, the current church. So those are big issues. And, you know, I, I, I'm, we both agree that, that the decision to change churches was correct we left for the right reasons, reasons of conviction, and that going to Harmony Church was the right thing to do. But I would be remiss if I tried to paint a picture that this was some primrose path uh, and everything was all, you know, giggles and rainbows uh, in this switch. There's a lot of logistical issues that were raised, not the least of which is we're 56 miles away from the church. Um, and, you know, we're an hour down there and an hour back every time we go to church. And uh, just being that uh, far away from your church and losing that social network, that those are big things that you have to deal with. All right. Well, let me ask you one last question. Um, was, was it worth it? It was worth it. We would make the same decision again. Uh, it was not an easy decision to make. And um, I just feel like the Lord says, it, if you're going to press in to these things, I mean, there's a narrow gate, right? And uh, a narrow path. And it's going to require some care and some difficulty. Uh, going with the flow is always going to be in some sense easier. But following the Lord Jesus Christ in this world, you're going to find some challenges in that. And we have, but we've been blessed in it, and we make the same decision again, absolutely. That's, uh, that's, that's wonderful to hear and, and so very true. Dan, I've, I've enjoyed talking to you about this. Um, SuccessfulSavior.org is the website uh, for Harmony Church. Um, hopefully we'll have you back to, to talk more uh, about something else in the future. I've really enjoyed, enjoyed having you brother. And um, I just pray that God blesses you and your ministry there and your family as you continue to try to serve him. Thanks brother Josh. I appreciate you having me. Look forward to another conversation. <laughs>